when you actually prioritize your own happiness and well-being and yet you get paid less, your happiness will be worth more. Keep something in your school life or your life that you actually like doing. It's not about how you get there. There are a lot of different ways You'll, and there'll never be a clean journey. And if there is, it's, it'll probably be pretty boring and underwhelming. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. I am so excited about this week's guest and how wild that it coincides with the very weekend I landed in Antarctica exactly a year ago. Time has flown so much. I still can't believe that actually happened. It's kind of like a dream of going to a different planet, but how amazing to get to relive it all in this episode. I'm so pumped to have David Knopf with us this week. You'll be able to hear in my voice very quickly how fascinating I found his pathier. Not only his Antarctic journey, which you'll hear all about, but all the crazy dots that had to connect to get him there. Think starting off with doing woodwork in VCE to a career as an officer in the Army commanding a whole platoon with the Regional Assistance Mission at Solomon Islands, turned diplomat at the Australian High Commission in Pakistan, which then became first secretary at the Australian Embassy in Iraq, we decided professional photography in Turkey, medals for formation skydiving in Dubai, and even some records in splitboarding, which, by the way, is a hybrid snowboard that can be separated into cross-country skis for ascent. And that's all before he became an Antarctic station leader at Davis Station, which is not only already a uniquely intense and challenging role to fill, let alone when you get stuck there during an unprecedented global pandemic for 537 days. You can only imagine how interesting that story is, such that he has written it all into an incredible book, which I absolutely poured over, with more exciting projects related to that story on the horizon. I'll let David tell you more about it himself. He is a far better storyteller, but I hope you find it as captivating and invigorating as I did. Very small side note, for some reason, I used the same exact setup with microphones and everything as I usually do, but my audio got a little bit distorted and we don't know why. We fixed it up mostly, but his audio is far better than mine. He had a pro setup. So for any of those very accustomed ears who notice my audio isn't as good as usual, my apologies, but I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. David, welcome to Seize the Yay. Thanks for having me. I, I can't wait to, to delve into this. I am so excited about this. I just mentioned off air that we have been chatting for a little while. In fact, we had one rando call that just went for like an hour and a half that was just becoming mates. But also with the Antarctic connection, I landed in Antarctica on this day last year. So this was meant to be. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I was just saying as well, like this is a quite early in the Antarctic summer to get down there. So it would have been great to, to go. Like the first time I ever went down was as a tourist as well back in sort of 2015 or something. But we went in sort of January and at the peak of summer, whereas you would have still got it in November, you can still get some very, very cold temperatures. You still got a lot of sea ice and the, the wildlife is still kind of returning from its 
you know, winter abroad and then they all go back to Antarctica for the summer to breed and yeah. We did hear that I had a couple of people say oh, who had been in sort of the November, like there were a lot more whales later in the season, but they also were like, oh, my God, the smell. And I was like, what smell? Hmm. We had pristine ice, like nothing had been touched for a whole winter. It was amazing. I didn't smell anything. <laughs> oh, I love that because I had someone the other day chatting about, because uh, I'm heading back down to Antarctica this summer as well, and it was kind of sort of gearing up and doing some training and stuff. And so I was like, oh, I really, really want to just spend a night like out at a penguin colony, just like in and amongst it. And I'm like, well, first of all, under the permitting regulations, you're not really supposed to do that. <laughs> Second of all, the minute you've smelt a penguin rookery and a colony, it's spectacular, but the smell will put you off ever spending any longer than the minimum amount of time. <laughs> it's pungent, like not from yeah. Antarctica, from other experiences. And we actually did this random thing out in Sorrento where you can swim out to the seal. There's like this, I think it's the, oh, it's some famous hut anyway on the peninsula. Yeah. And all these seals like have made it their home and you can go and dive. And with your snorkel on, it's fine. Accidentally took my snorkel off. I was like, I'm going to die like I'm deceased from the scent of the fish yeah. and the wee oh my god it was so much so I can't I can't even imagine but I have just finished your incredible incredible book 537 days of winter and as you listeners know I dropped hints last week and a lot of you were already very excited without knowing anything really about David's story that he's an Antarctic expert among so many other things I cannot wait to get into this but before we do, I start every episode with a little <laughs> a little icebreaker, never been more relevant, <laughs> which is to ask, what is the most down-to-earth thing about you? Because you have an incredibly impressive resume. You've done, before the Antarctica chapter even starts, you've done incredible things. And I think we all just need to know that you're a regular dude who does weird, quirky, down-to-earth shit. Oh, I reckon the best one is at the moment, I am so excited by my house plants <laughs> and like, one of my projects in lockdown 2021 amongst writing the book was seeding avocado pips and being like, right, avocados aren't supposed to grow in Melbourne, but I'm going to just, every avocado I eat, I'm going to work with the pips and try and grow them. And now I have, two years gone after that, one of my avocado trees in the backyard. <gasps> I was stand there and stare at it, going like, "That was a pip that I ate. <laughs> like it was that was an avocado pip from an avocado I ate, and now look at it. It's a tree. I'm so proud of it. It's just so that's probably the dorkiest, down to earth, least adventurous thing about me at the moment. I love how it's like the basic pleasures of not living in, in Antarctica is that you can have plants. Like <laughs> you can have an avocado. You can have an avocado. Like how exciting. <laughs> Oh my god! Of course, you wouldn't yes. have had avocados. We had, yeah. So it's funny with the food we did and didn't have down there, and even you would have seen this on a short trip to the peninsula, like bananas and some of these things. They just don't last. You just can't freeze them properly. You can dehydrate them, and and I did get addicted to dehydrated bananas. Funnily <laughs> enough, but and they're a very acquired taste. I've tried them now that I'm back, and you're like, nah, not really. But yeah, avocados. You have like guacamole. Paste you can you can freeze and keep in the but it's just like that's the sort of stuff from the your supermarket aisle that you look at it and go oh if I don't have time to make guacamole I just buy that and no one really enjoys it that much that's all you get but, I mean these are first, first <laughs> very first <world> problem <laughs> because in in so many ways the food down there on the Antarctic stations and even some of the like more adventurous expeditions it's pretty good uh, there's no parasite like there's no flies there's no bugs and all that stuff and it's ninety nine percent of the time. It's at least below fridge temperatures, so below four degrees or freezing. 
You can leave your food outside. You just got to put it in the shade, put some snow on the top of it. You can just leave. <laughs> anywhere. You can just, leave, just leave it anywhere. Like you just bet people are like, oh, what, what do you do with food? And, you, and then you go, well, how much of your diet these days is frozen? And they go, oh, yeah, wow. And you exactly. So we, you know, we're stuck there for a year and a half and still right at the end of that, we still had eggs. Now, I wouldn't describe them as fresh eggs. <laughs> Fresh is not the word I'd use, but... No, but they're specially <laughs> preserved. They put this like oil coating on them and this company in Tassie that do it and then you keep them at the right temperature and in the right locations. And you just make sure that when you're cracking them, you're cracking them all separately if you're putting a bunch together. So if you get a rotten one, it's not doesn't spoil Whoa. the whole cake. But you kind of go, wow, like in terms of food technology, we've come a long way from you know 100 years ago when they went to Antarctica, they kind of had like tinned meat and <laughs> Seal and blubber. <laughs> Yeah, that would add some pepper to it. They're like, oh, delicious. I mean, that was one of my favorite parts. I mean, apart from the more awe inspiring and like heated leadership questions and the rescue missions, and actually, it was like the banal kind of day to day what do you actually do on a on an Antarctic station that I found so fascinating because it's just so foreign for most people to read about like this is what I love about this show is I get to dive into lifestyles that you don't have to live the lifestyle to hear from someone who's done it to kind of like live it yourself. But before we get there, my favourite thing about getting to spend time with people like you is to trace back that people will meet you through your book or through your public speaking and you're an Antarctic expedition leader who's gone on this incredibly once-in-a-lifetime journey at a time when the world has never seen, you know, there's so many big ticket things and forget that you were once a kid who had no idea he'd end up here, who had to make decisions about your career, who had an entire career before this, by the way. And I've got, you know, in my kind of like weird creep research, I've gone back to like the subjects that you studied at school and like what you thought that would translate to. And I think tracing back to who you were as a kid and all the decisions it took to get you here is what's really relatable for people listening who don't know where they could end up one day and that it could be on an Antarctic station. So can you take us back to three kids in Glen Waverley, physics, maths, woodwork, keeping your options open for after school, your first jobs, you know, what was your childhood like and who did you think you'd be? Wow, that is that is taking it a long way back. <laughs> it's my specialty. Let's throw back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I grew up with Glen Waverley. I was a second of three kids. Parents, like, Parents ran a small business, which I think in so many ways set the three of us kids up in terms of we didn't see it as a – like the, the the whole family was the business and that, yes, dad went to work and mum went to work and we went to work during the school holidays. We, we were running like an automotive parts business. So in the holidays we'd go and wow. work in the warehouse picking orders and, and learning all that stuff, which under, under modern workplace health and safety would just be completely <laughs> not – you cannot get – a 12-year-old kid on school holidays to pick orders in a warehouse on a skateboard while there's forklifts in operation. I was going to say, were you 14 and nine months? <laughs> Let's pretend you were. <laughs> well, yeah, anyway, um, won't, won't name the company yeah. then. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was all good. Geez, you, got, you got good at skateboarding. And so I think that set us up. We sort of had a good work ethic from, from a young age. But also we're fairly free-range kids. This was in the 90s out in Glen Waverley, pretty safe suburb. We'd ride BMXs like, and, or skateboards or rollerblades or whatever the phase of your childhood was for your method of transport <laughs> out into the parklands and you'd, just, you'd go and then you've got to be home by sunset sort of thing. And there was a group of other kids down the street and, and around the corner and you kind of just 
off you went. And I think as well, I, I was lucky enough to go to a school that had outdoor ed programs and, and those memories from school were my favourite ones of those, those camps. And it's, it's such a shame to hear as well now that a lot of schools are, have shied away from camps and overnight camping for, for a whole range of reasons. And I just look back and go, but that was the best part of school. Now, obviously not every kid loves the outdoors, but I really <laughs> love getting out, staying intense and, and learning how to do that well. And so, yeah, when it got to then academia and, and school, I wanted to be an engineer. And looking back, I didn't want to be an engineer, but it made sense. I liked building stuff. I liked being creative. And I was relatively good at physics and maths and some, some pretty classic boy sort of skills. And so then that was the path that, that I was going down. Yet when it got to then picking subjects for year 12, as you said, I was like, no, I really want to do woodwork. And the careers <laughs> advisor's like, why do you for me? Like, do, an, do another maths. I'm like, I hate the one maths I have to do. <laughs> Why am I doing two maths? I want to do woodwork. I want to have, I want to do something practical. And there was two of us at the school that were doing kind of, yeah, physics and advanced maths and, and, and woodwork. But keep something in your school life or your life that you actually like doing. And, and that became such a, and then even to this day now, when I'm renovating my house, I've built my kitchen bench, I've built coffee tables around my house and rebuilt my staircase, all these carpentry skills. And someone's like, hey, where did you learn how to do this stuff? I'm like, I did. VCE woodwork. Yeah, VCE woodwork. <laughs> yeah, it, it basically led you to a cabinet maker's apprenticeship, which I, I didn't go and do. So, like, my, my cabinet making skills, they're not that good, but they're good enough. Yeah, I was going to say, they don't sound terrible. <laughs> exactly. Whereas I have just not used algebra as often <laughs> <laughs> in my day to day life. Trigonometry, yes, you do need a bit of that with cabinet making. That was the thing. And then when I got to, got to uni and started doing an engineering degree, luckily it was a double degree engineering arts. And like two years into that, I just, well, I'm like, I don't want to be an engineer. Nothing about it inspired me. And I bailed on that, spent, I joined the Army Reserve, went, transferred to full-time service with the Army. I'm like, this is unreal. It's getting me outdoors. It's leadership. It's all these things I didn't really know I wanted to do in life and just straight away I found it. I'm like, great. I love this. It's practical. It's adventurous. And it's a good gig. And then I got to go overseas with the army as well as a platoon commander. So leading sort of 30 soldiers. I've been through officer training, took a platoon over the Solomon Islands in 2007 on a peacekeeping mission while I deferred uni. You know, most people's gap year is you go to Canada and go snowboarding <laughs> or backpack around Europe. Yeah, just get wasted in pubs yeah. in Europe and you're like commanding soldiers in the Solomon Islands. Yeah, which, which was, I mean, it was a pretty, we called it an armed vacation. So it certainly wasn't, <laughs> Amazing. wasn't, wasn't that like dangerous in the war, warlike kind of way. But but it was still just amazing. And I got back and, and then went, right, that's it. I'm not going back to engineering. I'm, I'm going to finish my arts degree. And, I, and I, at the time then had started working with foreign affairs and trade to get a job with them later on. And so, yes, we did a lot of joint work with them under the Regional Assistance Mission in the Solomon Islands. So I got back, finished my arts degree with a politics major, joined foreign affairs and trade and spent the next 10 years as a diplomat before <laughs> joining the Antarctic program. <laughs> That's but, so yeah. wild. I love that we actually connected through the wonderful Dean of Arts as both graduates of Monash University Arts Faculty and how funny it was that you were like, I am proof that with a plain arts degree, which most people don't know what to do with because it's so broad, you can do these incredible things and go and like, I mean, like literally, you I've said this to you before and everyone listening knows, for some random reason that has nothing to do with anything in my life, military and international diplomacy is like my jam. It's like the thing I would have done if I didn't go into business. That's what I would have used law for. So, 
reading about you going, you know, from the Solomon Islands to Canberra to then, oh, let's just like hang out in Islamabad for like five years before Antarctica. Like it's just wild that this is your journey, but also a really interesting kind of re reiteration of the idea that also your life happens in chapters. So like in the army chapter, you might have thought this is going to be my career, I'll be military. But then actually it's diplomacy and then you do that for five years or six years or whatever and then suddenly it's like, no, it's time for a next chapter. And I think we all think that we need to find our dream job and then we arrive there and then we stay there for the rest of our life. And it's like actually life is always evolving in these like these chapters that inevitably you'll you'll kind of like get to one new thing, it'll stretch you, your comfort zone will catch up to you, you'll know it's time for something new. So I'd love to hear how, firstly, I mean how going from sort of Duntroon to then changing your whole skill set to diplomacy and then working in these high risk, high intensity environments, what that was like, because that's my favorite bit personally. <laughs> but then also when you know that it's time to move out of something like that into something new. You're so right. And I know so many people that that you know chase their dream job and it's just not what it cracked up to be for, for so many different reasons. And yeah, that, that idea of, oh, I want to and I say this when I, when I talk to school students, either kind of in, in an actual session or just one-on-one, hey, they want to ask questions, always say like there are so many careers out there where there is no path. Yeah, there's a lot of – yeah, you want to be a doctor, you've got to go and do that. You've got good marks, you've got to get into medicine, you've got to be a doctor. Then there's like a 100 different types of doctors you can be. You can be a doctor that just sits at one clinic their whole life and does the same thing and work, retires after 50 years. Or you can go and do a million other things within that career. But yet there's so many jobs out there and I look at my kind of job and lifestyle now and there is no set career path. <laughs> everyone, everyone asks that around, around DFAT. They're like, oh, how did you get into DFAT? Now, classic way to get into DFAT is you do an international relations degree, like international relations, you get a master's in it or a PhD and you speak Japanese and Chinese and, and, and French and Italian or something like that and, and you go bang and you're in, you, they'll hire you, right? That's what they want. There are so many people within foreign affairs and trade and, and that represent Australia overseas at our embassies who have just completely illogical career paths <laughs> into that. But they're great at it because that's what you need. You mean know, diplomats from what people see is probably the, the most obvious thing they see is dealing with consular issues overseas if you're an Australian that's banged up abroad and and something's gone wrong and they're they're incarcerated or they've lost all their belongings have been robbed and, and all the you know response to say like the Bali bombings or something the embassy official is going to do that you, the last thing you want is a bunch of just PhD students in international <laughs> relations <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you need a combination and so there's some very very practical backgrounds from all I don't know one of my mates has got an agricultural degree and he's he's a great diplomat and that's amazing he just his pathways into that. so that's something as well I think people forget is it's not about how you get there there, there are a lot of different ways you and there'll never be a clean journey and and if there is it's it'll probably be pretty boring and underwhelming <laughs> but sort of to, to back up then to, to your, your real question there was around like okay well how do you know when to change careers and you're right like when i was in the army i loved it i was i really enjoyed being a being an officer and and, and being an infantry soldier as well like it was it was everything i wanted and i kind of felt that when i got back from my trip to the the Sollies. I'm like, geez. And most of the other old old veterans and and everyone and, and other people I spoke to, they were like, it doesn't get much better than that, like leading your platoon on your first trip. <laughs> yeah, you've peaked too of, early. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, now I really, I'd wanted to go to war in, in so many, it sounds so stupid, but you, you do when you're a soldier, you kind of, oh, you want to you go and do something. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe that was enough. I got to lead a peacekeeping patrol and, and, and did some cool little bits in it and there's a great story at the end of the book around that of kind of like oh that's that's about as good as it gets for a 
for an infantry officer. And at the time then I realized that the army doesn't give you a lot of choice in your career. It'll tell you where you're going and you can have, and I've, I know some stellar army officers who just through no fault of their own missed out on a lot of trips, didn't get to Afghanistan or went once in a kind of advisory headquarters role where they don't feel like they really did what they wanted to do. And so I kind of saw that and went, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I want more control. And, and foreign affairs gave me a lot more control over where I wanted to go because I ended up going to places like, you know, Pakistan and Iraq and, and not going to the embassies in Paris or Tokyo <laughs> or the UN because you could do that. A, you could do that later when you've got a family. Yeah. But B, we get along in those. Like it's, it's fascinating work, but I'm like, no, nah, I want to go and work at an embassy where we, we don't get along. And, and then, you know, a decade after that, in and around the conflict zones, I just realised I'm like, you know what, I'm pretty tired of this. I, I then cornered myself with that career that I probably wasn't that competitive to then get a job in Vienna or London or, or somewhere like that. I was going to have to go back to Canberra for a while, wait another couple of years, reskill internally to get out to to one of those places. And I'm like, you know what, three years in Canberra ah uh, just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> oh, really? That's yeah. so surprising. No, nothing against Canberra. Especially with your personality as is emerging from the things you like to do. <laughs> oh, well, I, I did. I, I spent two years in Canberra and I did love it. It's, you could go mountain biking for work and – it's uh, two hours from the ski fields, two hours from the coast. So it's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's no Pakistan or the Antarctic Peninsula, but it's got a lot going for it. Hey, like Islamabad. Yeah, great mountain biking story before work. And in Islamabad one day. <laughs> Canberra, Islamabad, same, same. <laughs> you know, des- both designed by Sir Walter Burley Griffin. Had a hand. Stop it. Dead set, dead set. Burley Griffin had a. Pl- I'm pretty. No, I'm, there you go. Someone might correct me. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that was the, the rumor that there's roundabouts and straight lines. Everywhere. Islamabad is designed by the same guy. But so I had my mountain bike over there, and Islamabad is nestled up against a set of hills called the Margala Hills, which essentially start from the, the, the kind of flatness of the, the, the Punjab province of, of Pakistan, but then it heads north. So from Islamabad north is the Margala Hills, and then it eventually gets into the Karakoram Range and then heads up into the kind of you know, the highest points of earth and hits K2, etc. Oh, K2. So you've got these just spectacular hills that go straight out of Islamabad. And, I'd, and when a couple of mates of mine, I had mountain bikes over them, we'd go before work and you'd go up these hiking trails that weren't really mountain bike trails, but if you went early enough on a day, you just you didn't think there'd be people. But one morning I was, I was hooning, hooning down the hills on my mountain bike, having a ball when like a wild boar <laughs> ran in front of me and I'm like, oh, wow, like, oh, and that's not, that wasn't too crazy. But then like a bunch of dudes just started firing rifles and were like hunting and chasing the boar. And I'm like, okay, that's about as dangerous. Like I was just nearly <laughs> killed a bloody crossfire because like these these dudes had obviously gone like, oh, if we go hunting in the hills, no one's hiking this early. They hadn't expected that idiots would be mountain biking that early. So you kind of, yeah, one of those moments where you go. <laughs> so do you think that like one of the things that fascinates me is that we are just conditioned to sort of think that certain pathways are better than others or that we should be siloed in this particular way if our personality is xyz and it fascinates me that actually we're just all built to find what i call yay like your fulfillment or your joy or whatever it is in completely different things so what i would think of i mean probably there's a part of my personality that would have been very suited to that because i do really thrive on that adrenaline and risk and danger in a diplomacy context. Like I love the idea of working on international conflicts, but some people would think 
what you did in Pakistan and in that diplomacy chapter of your life is their nightmare. Not only would they not actively seek it, it's like they would never, you couldn't pay them to go and do that. But obviously for you, it was like something that felt like an amazing career at that time. So like, what was it that drew you to it? Was it the challenge? Was it the outdoors? Was it the risk? Like, are you an adrenaline junkie? I have been told I'm an adrenaline junkie. (laughs) I have been informed. (laughs) Yeah, I I resent the term because I like, I take calculated risks. And you're absolutely right. The the reason I went into the army and diplomacy and the stuff I do now with the Antarctic program and and those trips, yeah, there's elements of of uncertainty and, and danger but that's life, the natural order of things. And you look at the, the animal world and, and our evolution as a species. We never knew where our meals were coming from. And then we created all, all society and order and all these things to kind of give you, you, you want a balance of, okay, we know that if we've, we've, got, we've got grains and crops now, and we've got our village of 150 people and we can go from there and you could start any, but still you would go off on, on the hunt or the, oh, the, the season's changing. We need to move to higher ground as a, as a community and everyone packs up and you bring the kids and you do all the stuff and you go out the front door and you have to go on these adventures. That's how we're designed to operate. That's how every other species on the planet operates. They don't have the comfort zones and everything that we've created, all these man-made structures. And I even, oh, I love one of my favorite quotes that I, I don't know where it's from, but Someone was telling me this this morning about, oh, we've, we're trying to get some cargo on one of the flights we've got. And they're like, oh, we might have to stuff it in our own bags. And I'm like, no, forget about it. We own the planes. We own the contracts. We can, all of these rules are man-made. There is no man-made law that can't be broken. <laughs> nice. Great quote. Only laws that matter are the laws of physics because everything else is a man-made construct and there's probably a way around it in terms of we can get approvals or we can change this. And half the time, especially if it's a government-funded trip, you're like, well, we probably wrote the bloody yeah, laws or we the rules or guidelines. So, <laughs> so we could probably change that. I know there's been some government is so hilarious. This is why I always like love debunking conspiracy theories of people like, oh, the government does this. And like, what about in Antarctica? There's like, you know, secret bases and all these things. I'm like, have you met the government? <laughs> Governments, there's no way that the government could manage a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Yeah, they're struggling with the things that are overt, let alone the rest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's just a function of the size of how complicated. But, yeah, the amount of times government is fighting government. I don't know. I've, I've gone way off track. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the government versus government thing has brought me back to your Antarctic adventure because there's a, a huge operation in the books that I'll get to that involves different governments, which, again, is, like, so fascinating to me. But I personally would love to spend more time on the military and on diplomacy because that's my jam, but I want to spend a lot of the episode on your Antarctic experience. So moving on to sort of the transition away from one career, again, to this totally new career, which seems like it has a lot in common with the outdoors and leadership and all that, but but obviously is completely different. You had to retrain. You also had this transitional period where guys like, this guy, come on. He then worked as a freelance photographer, made like skydiving records, has qualified in open water diving. Like there's basically nothing he can't do. Became like a hybrid snowboarder who like broke all these records. Like just just a really relaxed gardening leave that you took in between your two jobs. How did you know that you were at the end of a chapter? And then I think what's most overwhelming for people, particularly if they get thrown into that involuntarily, like through a redundancy or COVID or whatever, how do you re-find a new pathway then and find your place in the world? It's like you're almost going back to the end of high school and it's like, hey, be whoever you want now. Like, how do you do that? 
I think the the minute you know, and you you're right. I don't know what, where you got any things about. I don't hold any records. For anything. I've just done. I've, I've certainly done a lot of stuff. One of the first people to snowboard down a range of peaks on the Antarctic Peninsula oh, using yeah, splitboards. Okay, yeah, I'll take. Yeah, that. <laughs> that's not really. That's like a Guinness record. It's just. It's, it's still just a record. Such a hard, hard place to get to that few people have yeah. done. Anyway. <laughs> He's humble, guys. He's humble. Yeah. But uh, I think that, the, look, and I, I use that in, in my talks and stuff is, is around the link to resilience. People go, oh, how do you get so resilient? I'm like, just you need to know why you're doing something. The minute you know why you're doing it and you've, you've got a high level of desire to succeed or even get to a location or achieve that goal, you're set. And But the minute you don't and the minute you kind of find yourself going like, oh, why am I doing this? Or, oh, you know, it's a good paycheck or it pays, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's just like I need to do this for another two years to, and then I can, you're like, no, nah. the minute you're talking like that or you're telling that to yourself or you hear yourself telling that story to others, you need to get out of it. Now, it's the world is is a complicated, complicated place. So you, you do have to factor in like, okay, I can't just quit my job and do something else. But I think COVID taught this lesson to a lot of people. If you haven't learned this through COVID, learn it now on this podcast, <laughs> is that when you actually prioritize your own happiness and well-being and yet you get paid less, you'll be your happiness will be worth more. And then you'll find you're, you're better at it and and you'll just the whole thing works better when you've got more time with your family or more time to focus on your side hustle or your passions. But your your core money earner or bread breadwinning kind of job don't let that define you and and I, I tell people as well like don't get out of bed for someone other than yourself like you're getting out of bed to do something you want to do and if that and yeah, yeah if you've got to get up and you've got to be at work at seven o'clock in the morning like cool get you're getting up at five so you can then do something that you want to do and that might be standing in the backyard and look at your avocado plant and be like, <laughs> yeah, look at that avocado plant. I did that. Um, or your, your kids or your dog or, or your, some fitness stuff or get up and read a book because then you got out of bed and you did something you wanted to do. And then you go, oh, now I better go earn some money and pay the bills because, you know, life. But then outside of that, and one of the cool things on the Antarctic stations is, yeah, we work sort of eight or nine hours a day and you're always, you're kind of always working, but you're actually without the commute to work and a whole range of other factors. You then still have hours to do other things. And some of the hobbies and, and the sessions we run down there, just, this is kind of delving into the, the depths of the story as well, but then use the, your professional development side of it. And we used to run like some of the best stuff we do down there is like every Wednesday night we'd run different talks. So, and if you've never done public speaking before, bang, there's your chance, get up, back yourself in. We'd run group fitness classes, um, workshops, hobby heart sessions, building development, language things, music lessons, whatever it was, everyone would learn from each other and do different things. And it's a real unique thing. You probably even had this on your Antarctic voyage. Like the talks and learning from those around you is so important. And workplaces that that, that value professional development, which I really enjoy because I'm one of the people that get in to come and talk about this. <laughs> but the, the minute you go to a workplace that actually encourages that, their ability to retain people and keep them going. And, and people go, oh, we don't have the budget to get in speakers. You're like, use your own people. Like you don't need to go and hire, you know, you don't need expensive speakers. You don't even need anyone from outside. Use your own people, encourage them to develop and learn from each other. And you can just, and you, you see the group come together. You see people backing each other up and you go, and everyone then can, can grow. If like, oh, I'm not good at public speaking. You're like, cool. Well, what better way to get better than to go start with a small group of people, you know, 
they'll help you out. They'll give you some pointers and some feedback or whatever it is. And you can, you can grow and you learn. So when you to kind of get right back to your question, how do you know? It, it, the, I think the minute you're questioning like, all right, why am I doing this? You go, and I think for me at the end of my career in diplomacy, I, I was in, I'd been in Iraq for about a year and a bit, uh, you know, back and forth a lot of times. And I was looking at other people around me. I was tired of a lot of the complicated elements around what we were doing in Iraq. It was fascinating at the start, but by the end, you're like, this is pretty complicated. And I loved delving into the thousands of years of history of what on earth we were doing there and trying to explain. I remember once trying to explain this. So I was working in, with an Anzac task group as well. This is newly arrived group, a little of Kiwis. I'd say, I was about to say little, they were not little, these guys were units. <laughs> um, little baby soldiers. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. They're like, so, so what's, how, what's, what's this all about? What are we doing here from your point of view? And I'm like, right, cool. So let's go back. Like, first of all, we're going to go back 100 years to the Sykes Pico agreement. But then we're also going to and go back to the Ottoman Empire. But then we're oh going my to go God, Sykes Pico. <laughs> oh, and you just go. And you, you, but you're starting to go like, all right, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm sick of all this. Let's do something else. And for me, that was a shift away from diplomacy in, in war zones to the Australian Antarctic program and, and working on climate science. And now I'm not a scientist, as we established earlier, but <laughs> the way I can help that is to get down there and, and work around them and get them to where they need to go and, and, and be part of that project and then communicate it to others and, and tell everyone I can, I can about some of the work that gets done down there and the importance of it and how we're trying to understand, you know, what's happening down in Antarctica. And, and that for me became the, the new renewed sense of like, all right, I'm, I'm good at logistics and operations and adventurous places, but I'm also, and I'm also good at understanding the nuances and complexity of, of government funded operations. So I'm like, great, let's just put all of that together and, and get down and, and work with the Australian Antarctic. And, I, and I've, you know, I've been down six times, I think in total, on various different voyages and, and expeditions. I'm, I'm heading back down this summer and I think after this trip, that'll probably be it. And I'll be like, all right, let's, you've, you've done a lot of Antarctica, you've been to all Australia stations, you've led teams, small teams, big teams, done some complicated stuff, written a book about it. Like I think I'm going to be ready for, for what's next. And I, And again, when you are, so I'm in that phase now and you go, don't be too – rash and, and try and, and latch onto something too quickly. Be be content to sit back a bit and go, all right, might have to wait and see what comes up. And and again, you've got to pay the bill. So you might have to take some sort of backward step where you are, but be honest with yourself with that. Go, this isn't a great opportunity. This is just right. I need to make that amount of money a year to pay my mortgage. So I'll take that. But then that gives me four hours a day to do my side hustle and then as that grows, they, I remember saying like seeing a great thing when I sort of transitioned to what I do now is like, don't quit your job to focus on your side hustle. Focus on your side hustle until you get fired. I'm like, oh, that's good. good one. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't get to that, but it it gave me a good mindset of like, don't don't just quit everything For and go sake. right. I'm, I'm I'm finished with that. I'm now going to be a podcaster and and do this stuff. Start all of that in your spare time until you get to a point where you, you're starting to make money with your side hustle or your other job and, and you go, right, I can now turn off. Again, I'm using my hands too often for a podcast. <laughs> no, I love it. But I also I love that you, you're you like the perfect speaker for this entire show because everything is just slightly different wording on what I like hammer into people about the idea that you know, everyone's yay is a jigsaw puzzle and you're always adding new pieces and getting rid of other pieces. And at sometimes 
your joy and your job overlap. And sometimes they don't. It's like, this is the reality, pay the bills, do the stuff. And then, but you find your joy elsewhere. And as long as the puzzle is kind of all somewhat balancing, it doesn't matter where you're getting that fulfillment as long as you're finding it somewhere. But I think the other part of that, when you're transitioning from one joy to the next is, and I'm really interested to hear your answer on this, because this question varies a lot often between the genders. Mass generalization, no scientific research behind this, but I'd love to know your view on the fact that when you are doing something that requires, to us on the outside, it's very obvious that your skills are transferable from diplomacy to Antarctic expeditions, but you've gone from somewhere where you're, you were awarded service medals and defense medals and like very qualified and accomplished to like never been to Antarctica, had never like I want to ask you also about how you become qualified. And I know the training and the testing was like extreme. How do you deal with like the doubt or imposter syndrome that creeps into your mind of like, whoa, I was like senior and now I'm junior and I don't know what I'm doing here. And like, this is a whole new world. Did you have that? That is not, that, that is tough. And that the, the older you get, the harder that becomes to like, how do I start again? How do I go from being an expert in your field to... I've never been an Antarctic station leader. I've never been with the Australian program. Didn't know. And being humble in that is is important. But also you, you'll quickly understand where you know your skill sets feed into that. Even if you're starting again, you're starting with a lot of experience from something hopefully similar <laughs> but also, also might be completely different. And actually you were just talking about this before, you know, going into being a parent. How on earth do you know what to do? But you go, no. I've got a lifetime of experience of, of doing all sorts of other stuff that when you become a parent, you'd be like, ah, oh, great. It's just, you know, organizing chaos 24 hours a day and that's that. And you, you'll have done sleep deprivation when you were a teenager and, and like all these things that you're now going to have to do, you can, you'll, you'll realize that oh, everything in life is kind of the same. It's just the context will, will be different. So I think that that can be part of it. But for me, I was, I was pretty humble going into the Antarctic program and, and then now only a few years later I've got quite a lot of experience but I still never think you've got, a, you've got the market cornered on, on experience and knowledge. There's still a lot you, you will never know and if you ever think you know everything, you, you're kidding yourself and you, you need a reality check because even the most expert people in the world will, scientists and stuff are probably some of the best examples of this, they will still go, oh, we don't, we don't understand this or we don't know what's going on here and they'll, they'll seek an answer and they'll, they'll try and learn and, and find a way. And that for me is, is a way to approach any problem, especially when you're, you're changing careers or you're changing lifestyle, changing locations is, you know, knowledge dispels fear is a great quote from the Australian Parachute Training School. And I, I use that in so many different places. You go, geez, if I don't know something, learn about it. You know, the more you can then learn, you go, okay, all right, well, I don't know anything about this particular topic. Let's let's learn and read everything, talk to others about it, and then make your own opinion. I think that's probably the more important one of, of still backing yourself to, to make your own decisions on the information you've got. Oh, I love that. And then having said that, reading the book about your 537 days of being thrown into not just be, being a station leader, which was already foreign, but then not getting your reinforcements at particular times and the experts that you were meant to have on hand and like it just got even more chaotic. So I am so excited to enter the Antarctic chapter now. Tell us, so you became station leader at the Davis Station from 2019 to 2020, which ended up being over 500 days because COVID, the world changed and you couldn't get home. 
Can you first give us a lay of the land for people who have never been to Antarctica and don't know the layout, sort of what the Australian stations are, who else has stations around, like how you got there? I've only ever shared it from a tourist perspective, which was obviously South America. We only did the peninsula. We stayed on a boat. There was no like landing, whereas Davis is a station. It's in Antarctica and you, you're you not on a boat the whole time. So first just like lay out the logistics of it all and how you became the station leader so people understand kind of the context that the rest of the story comes out in. All right. So uh, to set the scene, it's 2019. I've, I've left my other career and I've decided to take a job as an, as an Antarctic station leader. The Australian Antarctic Program manages our three continental Antarctic stations uh, of Casey, Davis and Mawson. Casey's pretty much due south of Hobart, maybe a little bit west, about 4,000 kilometres away. Davis is a bit further west, maybe due south of kind of Perth-ish and about 5,000 k's away. And then Mawson is due south of sort of Heard Island, which is off the coast of Western Australia, about, you know, 6,000 sort of kilometres away. takes two weeks to sail there on an ice-breaking ship. You can fly <laughs> to Casey if you're lucky in the, the weather windows and then using smaller planes, you can, you can ferry between the stations, but only in the summertime from kind of November through to sort of March, April is the, is the end of flying operations and even the ships. So what we do is to man those stations. In the summertime, they'll have scientists in there and, and they might be up to Casey and Davis, about 100 people at each station maybe a 50-50 split of science and operational support. But the core group on the stations is always the wintering team, uh, which will be about 20 people, give or take, depending on what's going on for that particular year. So 24 of us went down on, on the Aurora Australis, which was the ice-breaking ship. We left on 23rd of October 2019 on a one-year contract of like, right, you're going to go down for a year. You'll spend that first summer with, 100 odd scientists that are there you've got helicopters and small boats and it'll be all the things you wanted 24 hours of daylight hashtag antarctica <laughs> penguins and, and honestly as the the leader in that situation is pretty straightforward you've got maritime experts aviation experts that just run everything for you and you just sit back and go maybe if we communicate better this week what yeah have done? let's hang out with more penguins tomorrow correct <laughs> but when it got to march 2020 so we're a few months in the ship came back to pick up all the scientists and go home. And that was the last ever visit of the Aurora Australis ship to Antarctica because we were supposed to come home in November 2020. On the new boat. On Australia's brand new icebreaker, the RSV Noina, which was being built in Romania. And it was going to be fitted out in in the (laughs) Netherlands, commissioned and sail down and pick us up on its maiden voyage. And so we, we, it's March 2020. We're like, yep, no worries. We'd heard about COVID. Everyone was still in this phase of like, oh, yeah, there'll be some – Travel restrictions and a little lockdown, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, you know, whatever. <laughs> flatten the curve, oh, my God. Yeah. PTSD. <laughs> exactly. So we were all we all just went, okay, great. What a year to winter in Antarctica. And as, you know, spoiler alert, as the year rolled on, <laughs> <laughs> it went from bad to worse in terms of, uh, yeah, we had the novelty phase when it was like where people are, calling us, going, oh, what do you do on the Antarctic stations during lockdowns? And we, we did these great little social media, media video clips and we were all having a ball going, oh, this is great. We have plenty to do. But by midwinter, so we celebrate Midwinter's Day, which is the winter solstice, 21st of June, 2020. And we, we, we celebrate that by doing a, a, a very formal dinner, but we also go for a swim. So at the time, <laughs> yeah, it's minus 22 degrees outside on that particular day. Oh my Ocean's gosh. two meters thick of sea ice. You've got to cut a hole in the ice. <gasps> Build a little pool, not at the same time, one at a time. You jump in for up to a minute. I think I'll last about 20 seconds. Oh. In you go, swim around a bit, 
get out and go, wow, what a cool, stupid thing we've done is go swimming in the middle of Antarctic winter. And for us, even though that's the midwinter's halfway point, for us it was actually two-thirds of the way through our journey. We were supposed to come oh, home of a couple of months after that. So for us, we're like, great, that's it. After this, you know, you get 24 hours of darkness at that time as well. You're going, all right, every day after this, there'll be seven more minutes of daylight and 150-odd days later we'll be coming home. Yet two days after that swim and the dinner, 23rd of June 2020 was when – we were told, I was, I was told first by the, the operations manager, he's like, look, Dave, the new ship, dock, the dockyard in Romania is shut down. It's not going to be finished in 2020, probably not even 2021. So there's no ship there. We can't use the old ship. It's been on sold to a different company. Australia doesn't own it anymore. You, you can't come home that way. We can't do the aviation link because all the planes we use to, to ferry around the stations, all those planes are stuck in North America and can't get through Central America because of the COVID lockdowns. And we have a lot of great relationships with the partner nations, namely the, the French, the Italians, the Americans, the, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Indians, the Russians, who all have stations in and around uh, Australia's. We normally share a lot of logistics. We share flights. We'll put cargo on different ships. We'll put people on different ships at times and move them around. They were like, because of COVID, no one's cooperating. It's just bang, every man for himself or every nation on, on their own. And we were stuck in this weird 60-year swing where we'd had one icebreaker for 30 years, we were due to have a new icebreaker commissioned for 30 years, and the one year in between those two icebreakers was COVID and the year we were there. What are the chances the boat would be scheduled for renewal that year? Oh, and look, there's so many variables in that and people go, oh, but, you know, why didn't they have a better transition period? And you go, well, obviously. But in so many ways, they didn't need to worry about that as much because they knew, well, okay, if the ship's late, we can fly everyone in and out and then we can use, we can borrow the the French will do a voyage for us or we can share logistics with the Chinese or we can charter another ship or we could do something in a normal year. But when it was 2020 in the COVID year, none of that was available. So the the program did have levels of redundancy to, to deal with any one of those incidents or even two of those incidents. But when you had all of them, you know, multiple, yeah, <laughs> it was, it was kind of crazy because they had to have, we have, and, and any of your corporate listeners and others will know these structures, like your emergency business continuity plans and your incident management groups and teams. We, we ended up with like, we had the umbrella incident management team of COVID. And then you had all these other sub incident groups and it just started to get, and I'm sure businesses had this as well. You're going, geez, we planned on, okay, that's how we set up for one incident. But no one had ever thought there'd be incidents within the incidents that require different breakout groups and you're just (laughs) trying to manage that and navigate it. And for us, in so many ways though, there was a simplicity to being stuck on an Antarctic station. It was 24 of us. We had two years worth of food and fuel and for some reason five years of toilet paper, which makes no sense. Oh, you were the reason why Australia had the toilet paper shortage because it was all in bloody Antarctic with you guys. I know. <laughs> yeah. so we, were, we were set. You can't eat it though. And oh, well, have you tried? You've- <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm sure people, well, given the rate it was selling back here. But anyway, so that that had a simplicity of like, great, we were stuck here and we knew we'd be there into sometime into 2021 and that we went around, and we were involved in some of the planning and thinking around, well, what are the options? But largely it was left to our bosses back in Hobart to go, oh, well, they'll come up with a plan of how to get a different ship or a different aircraft or whatever. And part of our mind was prepared for staying another winter and an entire other year, which would have got pretty interesting. If I've said, you know, the, the book at the moment is called 37 Days of Winter. I'm like, if it had gone another year, 
the book would be like a thousand days of mutiny, mayhem, and chaos of hell. <laughs> uh, it would have got pretty messy, but or, or it would have been fine. Like it was a great team, and I know it had we all had ups and downs along the way. Uh, yet, by and large, we all came back as, as professional colleagues with a very interesting shared experience, and that we would have otherwise never met. And one of the kind of interesting things I think your, your listeners would appreciate though was. The ability for not just myself but the entire team to reframe that is almost straight away and go, okay, we signed up for an Antarctic adventure for a year. We've now been told that's going to be a year and a half and it has a whole other layer of uncertainty. Well, what does home even look like? Not just you're there longer but also when you get home, it's going to be weird. But everyone was, was really able to just go, all right, well, let's make the most of this. There's some really unique elements to it. We got to do a lot more science in that second summer because there weren't all the other scientists down there to help out and do what they would normally do. So we got to jump in and do some of that. We were able to give the group more freedom on account of, okay, ordinarily, and you would have found this with your trip, you know, you're fairly controlled. You can do this. You can't do that. You've got to go out in pairs and take this equipment and take these things. But when I was able to say, well, actually, everyone's been here for a year. They, they know what they're doing. We can change the way we interpret some of these regulations to give – so rather than people having to come and ask me for, oh, can we go and do this? And be like, well, you know the conditions, you know the equipment required. Just go for a walk. You need to tell someone and you need to take the communication strategy so if you've got a problem. But you don't have to come and find me. And, and that – giving people more autonomy and control was, was really important and letting them get out and about and make their own fun and make the most of that unique opportunity because for so many people, that's their one trip to Antarctica – you do your winter. It's the only winter I've done. I've done multiple other summer trips, but winters are, are rarer. Some people do, you know, dozens of them, but it, it's pretty rare. And I think that's something that you can go. There's always a uniqueness to whatever situation you're in, especially when it's hard. And that was something that got me through it of, hey, you, you wanted an Antarctic challenge. You wanted to be a station leader. If it had gone to plan and been a normal year, would have been interesting, but geez, it wouldn't have been everything that it became and as it went from bad to worse and all of the things that came up along the way, none of them were unique. They'd all happened before and it'll happen again. They'd never all happened in one year. <laughs> and that, yeah. and that, that's what became really, really bizarre that when we were standing there, I remember chatting to a, a couple of other members of the team to just go, and there's a great quote I think in the book around that of just like, well, besides the pandemic, besides this and besides that, like oh, what, what else could be wrong? And it was – just a, a funny moment to list everything that had happened. Be like, what? On we coped with that. Yeah, we got we got through that. So. Well, before we get to some of the more colourful moments and how you got through them, I think I loved it as uh, an Antarctica lover, but also someone who finds human nature and behaviour fascinating, and then how that leads to leadership. I mean, you, your experience was like a an extreme like microcosm example of leadership everywhere except that you also became like a mother, an emergency services coordinator, the main doctor, the main, like you were making calls on everything. But there were so many lessons to pull out of that in the tougher moments. But just before we get to when it got difficult, what I found so interesting about Antarctica is not only that any rules of life just go out the window because talk about humility Antarctica humbles you as a human. Like nature doesn't care what you want to do. You're visiting there and it will just ruin any plans that you have. But also the conditions you live under, like what's normal in Antarctica is so different. So you had Wi-Fi, but it was patchy. Your sunlight in summer is constant. Your 
darkness in winter is constant. Like what was your day-to-day life? What did you have access to? And also the fact that when you're, you said you were working all the time, you're living with your colleagues. So that in itself is like you get no escape from each other. You do have downtime, but everyone, including scientists, would have to get involved in some of like the water plumbing activities because you're just all there to make it work for everyone. And that's not not normal in human life. So can you explain some more of the logistics of living? Like how you, you know, did you have a doctor there all the time? Like did was there a gym? Like what was life like? Yeah. So our life's actually pretty good when you look at it on the on especially the Australian stations. And I've been to about a dozen other national stations as well. And they were pretty much the same. And they'll all have a bit different pros and cons. So, and, and the previous director of the Australian program used to describe them as ski resorts. I'm like, yeah, but if you spend a year and a half with your 24 best mates on a ski resort, it's not all sunshine and beauty. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, there's a, there's a gym, there's a sauna, there's a hot tub, there's a library, there's a little cinema, there's a bar, there's a kitchen. Everyone gets their own room on the Aussie stations as long as you're there for more than a couple of weeks. Sometimes we have to you know, share during resupplies and really busy times, but more or less you get your own room, wafer-thin walls. So, <laughs> if you, you know, it's not amazing private, but pretty good. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. The, the the worst part about it is that there's, there's really little privacy. Even if you are locked in your own room and you've shut the door and you're trying to watch a movie or nap during the day or whatever it is, someone will slam a door or cough loudly or snore or fart or my room was really close to where people used to do haircuts. Oh, my God, haircuts. Of course. So we had one guy that uh, he really did a great job of and we had a couple of girls in the team as well and he did. And one of them had really long curly hair and the, the hairdresser who was one of the mechanics, he did a great job one day where they just parked in the bar, set up the whole barber shop, set up and he just he'd watched a few YouTube clips on how to do women's hair and, and off he went and <laughs> did a, did an amazing job. So there was some of those things that, yeah, and I mean, if you look at the photos of me at, at the end of the year and a half, uh, pretty that's the longest hair I'd had in a long time. And, <laughs> and a lot of people got some pretty interesting 2020-ish haircuts. I think, yeah, the photo of me at the airport. The photo section in the middle of the book is my favourite. I know. With your fancy shirt. Yeah, the fancy shirt, which was a lot darker blue at the start of the year, <laughs> not a faded blue by the year and a half. So you, you have to do all those things yourselves. And yeah, there's there's one doctor and then there's yeah, and there's one builder and there's oh, a couple of builders actually. And then you got builders, electronics technicians and engineers and meteorologists and all everyone's got their job. But, and I used to say as well, and, and the best way to approach it is, yes, you've got your job and you've got your hierarchy of, of work, but socially and as a community, everyone's equal. It doesn't matter. Like everyone, there's a roster for it that, you know, I do the roster, but it really you could anyone could do it. It's just it just repeats, and you've got to shuffle. So at any point, you've got six people that are on the fire team and the emergency response team, so that if anything goes wrong, they can you know man the fire hoses because and we do some great firefighter training before we leave, which is really cool. There's surgical assistants, so to help the one doctor, four people are trained as surgical assistants, so they spend two weeks in the ER in Hobart, doing everything from like delivering babies what? to car accidents and. Also, just as the assistant, so they they get probably I think some of the coolest, most unique. You can't just say, "Oh, hey, I want to go spend two weeks in the ER as a scrubbed in surgical <laughs> assistant." Any other hospital tell you to get stuffed, unless you're going to Antarctica, unless you're going to Antarctica or a nursing student or something. So that that's pretty cool. And because if anything happens and all this stuff happened, it's it's just you that people have to then help out. At one point when 
none of them were available. I actually helped have to suture some dude's head. He, he just banged his head on a, <laughs> on a staircase. And I was there and the doctor saw it happen. He's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, not much. And he's like, yeah, I'll just give us a hand. And so you're just in there with your gloves on, holding skin together while he's stitching. And you're going, this is, un- this is unreal because there's – no, that's it. It's it's just your team. That's human agility right there. Oh, and it, it's so fascinating learning all those skills. Oh, the other one, the, the one I really love about, I say this to look out the window, it's a nice blue sky day, is really becoming quite in tune with, with nature and the conditions that now if it's a beautiful day back here, my ability to stay inside and do any work is is, is nil. nil. I'm like, no, nah, <laughs> I've got to go for a walk, I've got to go for a run, I'm going to do stuff like Got to get out and about. And then on a rainy day, I'm like, great, blizz day. Today's the day you work. And now that works better in Antarctica because it sort of works in sort of these three-day swings, give or take. But it means you'll you'll get a good balance done. The problem is Australia has generally pretty good weather. So it can be can be tough. But I think that's something I think in the modern world, we're not very in tune with nature and and it doesn't matter what the conditions are because we've created a society and 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 buildings and infrastructure and everything to mean that we can deal with it. And yet you go and chat to Norwegians and Canadians. They're very in tune with the weather and the conditions because, you know, over there they have to still deal with it. But for us, it's it's a bit different. And that's one of my favourite takeaways is all those little soft skills and community things that you don't have to do back here but we have to do down there. I feel like even in just such a short time that we were there, you can't ignore, especially because we went with Intrepid and their B Corp, certification meant there were so many scientists on board and the sessions are amazing they make it without shoving it down your throat they make it impossible for you to visit without appreciating the enormity of nature there which then makes you reflect on the enormity of nature everywhere you just block it out when you're back home but having to see how nature is just like in its most pristine untouched by humans and how you're just at the mercy of weather. Like it's literally there's nothing you can do. Someone's having a heart attack, you can't fly. If you can't fly, you can't fly. Like you just can't get them there. It's Modern science has absolutely no strength compared to Mother Nature and it, it changes the way you think about everything. It's so interesting. And I think even things around like rubbish and sustainability mm. and recycling, like for us we're pretty not even very environmentally conscious down there and have really strict rules around all these things. You can't take polystyrene and you, you do all these different things and and you can't use certain types of hair products and soaps because they're bad for the water. And we treat all the water and it, like the water that does get discharged is, is you know, drinking level quality, et cetera, that goes back out into the ocean and we dis- desalinate water and all sorts of different things or we'll melt ice to get it. So you, you, your water is actually coming from diesel because you're like, well, it's either frozen or salty, so we've got to either desalinate it or melt it. And that's going to cost diesel. So if you're showering, imagine yourself showering in diesel because if you have a long shower, you're just burning more fossil fuels to do that. And even then the recycling, like when you'd be on rubbish duty, which you know, every you know, other week or something, you're probably on rubbish duty, every day you go, oh, it turns out. And you just realize how much rubbish 24 people are accumulating and how we deal with that in terms of, yep, cycling, recycling some of it. And we do have to incinerate other bits and we incinerate human waste from the field and different things. You kind of go, and you look at how much that's, you know, that's 24 people. If more people back home realize what happens when you put stuff in your bin and where it goes, and I think there's a great SBS thing on this now as well, like the war on trash or whatever, one of the chaser guys, some of that of looking at the chain of what happens to all this and, and my like massive hate, but beyond a pet hate now. Just again, like the amount of freaking packaging and everything. And you just look at it and you go, why is all this stuff individually wrapped? And I make a real good point of 
like my Hessian bags and everything at the supermarket, like never using the other ones to like put all your other fruits together. And I think the woman and all the, the checkout people at the market I go to, they look at like a my got basket individual is just, like everything. Well, it's just a basket of chaos <laughs> that has to go in a Hessian bag and it, it all rolls off the thing. They're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you go, no, I just, I can, I don't want to use any bags yeah. unless I absolutely have to use a, a plastic bag or something. And so th- that stuff becomes really, because you have to see it and you have to deal with it. So you go, oh, I, I need, I want to create less rubbish because I'm going to have to deal with the rubbish yeah. or I'm going to have to carry the rubbish walking around with me. So before you go out, and Army's good at this, who taught me this as well, like don't take anything into the field because you've got to carry it. For the rest and of the ever. <laughs> yeah, people, people cut their toothbrushes in half. They're like, oh, saves weight. You're like, saves that's, that's, weight. That's an Army thing. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, all right, mate. But I actually love that it makes you think in a way that like you can easily ignore where things go, but when you're in Antarctica, you can't because like you see where it goes. Like there's nowhere for it to go because you live in a station and like you're trying to keep your footprint small. And I feel like you just, you have to confront that. I think we get so accustomed to thinking we're so advanced as a human race that we're like, there's a way we can solve everything. But then I feel like in Antarctica, every problem you had was like, like sometimes there's just no solution. Like humans can't outthink the fact that there's a blizzard and I'm stuck at the, in the hut that's far away from where I'm meant to be, but I can't get back. So I just have to wait three days yeah. with this one dude with a puzzle and that's just what I'm going to have to do. And I, I think it that's so interesting because in our daily life back here, you're never forced into discomfort like that. So what were some of your toughest moments in that 537 days and then what were some of the coolest examples of humanity that came out of it? Well, I think the story I talk about there is the story in the book where we got stuck in one of the field huts, which, I mean, in a lot of ways we were safe because we were stuck in a hut. It was just me and one other guy and we hadn't planned on it. So we didn't have – we had enough – like the, the huts are stocked with food and supplies, but I didn't have um, – I didn't have like my headphones. I didn't have a book that I was reading. So I was just stuck with, right, what have we got in this hut? <laughs> and it was – it was blowing like a hundred kilometer an hour winds outside for you know a good few days, so we just couldn't go outside. The only job outside we had was every few hours, one of us would like open the door and shovel the doorway clear, so we knew that we could still get out, and that was great because you're like, oh, cool. And we started to have a problem with the amount of waste, the human waste we were accumulating in the hut. In the hut. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> which was getting it. We're like, oh, this is getting interesting. Bit dicey. Like, don't, don't drink too much water. Drink just enough water. Yeah. And then it'd be like you get really excited because, oh, I've got to cook dinner today. And, you know, you started cooking it. You know, one day you start at 5 o'clock, then you start at 4.30, then you start at 4, then you start at 3. <laughs> Clutching at straws here. Paper straws, obviously. Yeah, exactly. you you got nothing else to do. So that was – but I think that was a, a really cool moment. And he and I both agreed later. That, and even at the time, we're like, well, it always been on our Antarctic bucket list. Like, get stuck at a field hut away from station for an extended period of time. So it was kind of cool. That was on your bucket list to get stuck? I think so. I think it's a good one. Of like, it was, you know, it's the, we had no Wi Fi. We only had, we had a um, VHF radio back to station, was our only means of communication. And, it's, you know, we're probably only probably 30 or 40 Ks away. But we may as well have been hundreds of Ks away. That, the weather meant we just couldn't, couldn't go anywhere. And that was a, that's not a low point. That was a tough time. I think when that happened as well, that was right around our extension. We'd been there for a year and, and that period of time was the toughest. So we'd had 
members of the group that that had decided, yep, yeah, I'm not dealing with this well, and they were wavering, and I felt the group was fracturing at that point where it always had different, like not necessarily cliques, but but different just groups, you know, very different bunch of people. So you have very different conversations. And I felt at that point people would were kind of sick of trying to make it all work. And they're like, you know what, I got my four friends. I'll get along with everyone, but I don't care anymore. Like everyone had lost. Like motivation to. Motivation. And we dealt with that in a couple of ways. We we got everyone together and did a kind of wellness week where we, we took some reduced work hours and, and were able to prioritize some field trips and, and learn from each other again of, hey, what strategies are you using? Because stuff that we were using a year before didn't work. And as a community, to, to acknowledge that we're all struggling in our own way and, and we're all in the same boat, that became important. But it didn't work for everyone. And I think at moments there were people that I'm like, oh, this will be great for you know Sarah to do this 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 activity. And then, of course, you're not going to turn up to an activity because you don't want to do it. And <laughs> so you just go, and I, I'm like, oh, man, in the first half, people would always turn up to everything and then and, you know, by that point, you're running an event or you're running a professional development session and you're getting like two attendees. You're like, fuck, and what's everyone doing? And and yet it also once we were able to then just, just get through that lull and and know that the lull, it'll, it'll end. It was always going to be a really tough time, that, that anniversary, when we still kind of had, you know, months to go and we didn't quite know exactly what the end was going to look like. And I was trying to get some answers and some definitive advice on what does the end look like? What does home look like and what is the end going to be like? So we've got something to a horizon to swim to, as they call it. And that wasn't the solution to everything, though. It was just you had to just ride that lull. And then there was a great moment where we ran an art show. So in the first summer, we'd run an art show the first year. And then this, this, we did it almost on the one-year anniversary in that second summer. And for me, that was a bit of a turning point where everyone had then got these projects and there was some great then memorabilia of our year and some it's amazing watercolor of the station and we had framed photos of everyone of the, on the field trips and the, the the team team photo and framed flags and cool mementos of of everything we'd done and it, i think from that kind of moment people started to go this is pretty special this is pretty interesting and and uh, it will end and we'll, we'll get home that was a low point and i think you always have to just admit that you'll always have your low points and and, and it can be quite empowering to go all right that's what rock bottom was. Cool. Let's let's find a way up from there, and, and don't be afraid of of failing or, or feeling like you're, you're struggling because that's that's the human experience, and you'll you'll learn from it and you'll be better. Well, it was so interesting because even in like our short, I think it was twelve days or something, including our Drake Passage sailing, there were moments where for absolutely no reason, like we had really good, we had a really rough Drake Passage on the way back, but really smooth on the way over, and still nothing. No one was in like in actual danger. I still had moments where I was so remote, just your brain getting used to it all, where I was like, I'm going to die. Like, this is really scary and I can't come home, let alone if I was in winter when there's no light, you're just not used to that. And as as an Australian, we just never have that. And then you're stuck, literally stuck, being told you can't come home. Like, I can't imagine. Did you have fear around that of like, oh, my God, like I'm almost like claustrophobia even though you were in a big space? I, I never had any fears or doubts that we wouldn't make it through. Yeah, okay. I, it was around what's this going to look like at the end. Yeah. My one goal and the goal of everyone was, you know, get everyone home safely. Just became the goal. And, you know, besides all the other scientific research, all that other stuff, it's like just get everyone home safely. That That's that's it. That's the bar. If you achieve that. You've done your job. Be, it, yeah, you've done your job. It's not going to be pretty. You're not all going to be friends at the end of it. And 
I had to give up on that. And that as a leader, that's something I think you asked a little bit earlier about imposter syndrome and some of those things. As a leader, making my peace with being unpopular or just not being able to. Everyone to love you. Yeah. That was a moment where you just go, you know what? You're just not going to achieve that anymore. Let it go. And yeah, I could have, maybe a better leader could have done it better and, and, and all come home as absolute best friends. But I just, I felt that wasn't at all going to be possible. <laughs> and accepting that and going, but it doesn't matter if you get everyone home, get everyone home safely. And, and most, pretty much everyone's still in touch in, in some way. Oh, that's so nice. And, and more than half the group have actually either been back or are still involved in the, the Antarctic program in, in some way. So I think that was testament to that as tough as it was for everyone, when more than half the group are voluntarily going back there, voluntarily going back, you're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, and yourself, yeah, it wasn't that bad, yeah, no. And so that was that was part of it that helps you get through just the the darkness of like, all right, this is this is my group. So I wasn't fearful. I was worried at times about what like reintegrating home that became a worry of far out. What do we all do after this? We know we'd all sign up to go away for a year, but you know, a year and a half. And you, you kind of then you rebuild your comfort zone. So then you've got that Stockholm syndrome of, and you know, what, how do I now reintegrate into the world? And a lot of people went out of the group, went back and changed careers. As, as, and you, you'd argue that when you've signed up for a year in Antarctica, you, you, your other career probably wasn't. Yeah, your top priority. <laughs> you're doing plan, right? no, you probably has pretty good stats that you're going to change careers. But for me, it was that was a daunting experience of what am I going to do when I get home? Do I want to go back to what I was doing? Do I want to? you know, work with the Antarctic program more and that that becomes a challenge. And I, I probably am a bit of a daydream and I think that'll always help you get through your dark moments and your, your fears of going, well, yep, crossing the Drake Passage on a, on a rough day, that's that's pretty, yeah, I've, I've, I've done that. And, yeah, you're right. You go, geez, if, uh, <laughs> if, if something goes wrong with the boat here. Yeah, we are <laughs> rolling. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, I remember that yeah, I did it on a, on a 63-foot yacht and <gasps> – we were like, and they're chatting to the captain about it. I'm like, well, what happens if someone goes overboard here? He's like, <laughs> he's like, you're gone, mate. He's like, my ability to even turn the yacht around, he's like, would compromise the whole yacht. So we'll we'll throw you a life ring and, you know, hope you drift north. Hope for the best. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Like the, you're reading the book was so interesting because you're reading it as a participant in this experience, but also through the person who is the leader of that experience. So, and in Antarctica, it's so unique because you're like the legal leader as well. You're not just on a school camp where you're kind of in charge nominally, but then there's like the police and then there's like the government. You're in this like ungoverned territory that doesn't belong to anyone where you literally are making big legal calls at a time when there's no precedent for this. Like you're the messenger for all the shit news as well. And then you can't be best friends with everyone because like that dude who just quit halfway through and was like, I'm stuck here, but I'm quitting. The fact that you came out at the end and people have wanted to go back is a huge testament to your ability to lead, which is incredible. But I love that you brought up the idea of reintegration because I, again, on like the smallest level after 12 days of pure simplicity, like the basics of life, no Wi-Fi, we didn't have Wi-Fi at all, the Star Starlink wasn't working, and just immersion in nature and waking up with light and going to sleep with dark and eating when it, like just everything was so basic and simple in a complicated way, but blocking out the rest of the noise of the world, I did not like coming back. I was like, I just want to 
go back and live on a ship and live in Antarctica and just be in nature and the simple life. You don't need all of the stuff we create around ourselves yeah. here. You start to go, I don't need that. Was it hard for you to come home then? It was really the hardest part coming home I found was telling the story, understanding what on earth had gone on. And that was weird. You know, everyone had this, this idea of like, oh, geez, you were lucky you missed out on 2020. You know, you were stuck in Antarctica. Like, what are, what are we? And I'm like, do you have any fucking idea what happened? Like, <laughs> It's pretty rough down there, man. Like, but I also then realized it's it's about people's perception. So there were some people and never, I never ever discount how hard it was for people to get through the last couple of years of COVID, but even just get through life. Like everyone's struggle in their own, everyone's their own first person narrative. And some people's struggles are just insane for a whole range of reasons. And so you see this a bit around PTSD. It's not just someone that was, you know, in the middle of a you know, the last days of Kabul and fighting over the, the walls to get to planes and getting shot at bombs. Like, yeah, that's probably going to put you on the spectrum, but there can be a whole range of other things that can give you elements of trauma and and that you don't realise and that's when trauma can really hurt you is if you haven't acknowledged it and realised it. So for me when I got back, understanding what had happened back here was was tough, but taking some time to myself to just almost lock myself in my cave, rent about my house and, and not socialise and not really get out there and it – Took a, a few months to to really, really make the decision and, and and start putting pen to paper with the book. And when it came, I had a couple of publishers chasing me, and I knew I was on a, a story that was that was going to get a book deal, which was, was quite empowering. You'd be like, okay, great, I'll, I'll get a, I'll get a good deal out of this, and and if, unless I really stuff it up, it should sell pretty well. <laughs> And be therapeutic for you almost in the process. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly what I was going to say. So the the person I wrote the book for. The first draft I wrote for myself. Oh, and I love that. To just write the story, to get the story down of whether or not it, it, it works commercially became a secondary element. Because, yeah, the, pub, the publisher who Affirm Press did a great job and, and was so easy to work with and gave me so much freedom and autonomy for an unknown author, which was great as well. But in so many ways they wanted it to be like Jack Ryan goes to Antarctica. And- yeah. <laughs> And you're like, yeah, I'll play into that, whatever. Yeah, I'm like, sure. And that's why you can see elements in the book that, that – it has a bit of that, but it has to be commercially successful as well. Or yeah, and it was true. Some of those operations, like the evacuating medical evacuation, I was like, "That's a movie." Oh yeah, that, <laughs> that was one of the moments because people do they go, oh, "When did you decide to write the book?" I'm like, "Yeah, when we did the medical evacuation on Christmas 2020 using the Chinese and American programs to help us there, and that was like a two week operation working around the clock at right on the on Christmas for a Christmas miracles." The yeah. title of the chapter. <laughs> And it had everything. It's got helicopters. It's got tension. It's got drama. It's got medical problems. And like international cooperation. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Briefing the Chinese pilots was so much fun because we had to do it under COVID protocols as well. So I I laminated like giant meteorological charts and and all these like photos that normally would use a PowerPoint in the briefing room, but we had to do it outside with masks. So outside, like minus 10 degrees, luckily it wasn't that windy, but briefing these pilots using like hand signals and broken English and it was just like this is the coolest aviation briefing ever. (laughs) In the history (laughs) of humanity. Or the most ridiculous. And it was just, it was so good. And and the Chinese pilots were freaking unreal and spoke great, pretty pretty good. Well, they spoke a lot better English than I did Mandarin for for one. And that was just this cool moment. And then watching that helicopter take off and and take the team up to the runway, that they had to spend a week inland building the runway before we could even evacuate the patient. But watching that helicopter fly off kind of into the sunset 
was one of the moments I'm like, geez, this is getting pretty movie-esque. <laughs> this is hackers. <laughs> yeah, this is getting there. And then <laughs> like, and then later on, like as again, another spoiler alert. And there's a photo of it in the book anyway. And it's mentioned in the forward. But so halfway home, the whole thing's over, like day 528 or something like that, 5th of April. 10.58 in the morning, the ship has a catastrophic explosion. Oh, this the is the fire on your rescue fire. ship. <laughs> yeah, we're like, we're, we just like everyone there, the ship's disabled, rocking side to side in the Southern Ocean, standing there with life jackets on, ready to abandon ship. And we, we stood there for kind of hours while we, they fought the fire, got it under control, and then eventually six hours later got the ship restarted on one engine and then time to Fremantle. And, and I'm like, at, in that moment, standing in the forecastle of the ship, ready like next to the lifeboats ready to abandon ship with everyone around you just looking into the distance like thousand yard stairs just going in every direction just of just like no it's just like far out like this is how it ends we have to abandon ship like you're fucking kidding me i'm like this is definitely going to get me a, a book deal and james cameron should make the movie just saying uh well i kind of want because I, I've had a couple of meetings there. It's starting to get towards, okay, right, how do I TV, actually film? do this? Yeah. <gasps> well, I'd want to get like Taika Waititi and Chris Hemsworth. Oh, Taika. That would be amazing. I know. I just don't know how I'd be able to get them. Oh, we're, we're actually friends with the Hemsworth, so we can we'll, we, we can make the intro. Imagine being like, I want Chris Hemsworth to play me. Well, I do, and I've said that. And he just does. And, and people just laugh at me. I'm like, well, I reckon he'd love it. Who else would do it? Um, <laughs> you definitely have some humour and drama injected into it. Exactly. I think other classics of people are like, oh, maybe Sam Worthington. I'm like, ooh, maybe ooh. Sam Worthington. Yeah, could do if, if we can't get a Hemsworth. So. I bet young you at Duntroon never thought you'd be picking Hollywood stars to actually maybe play you in a, in a like, epic, a Hollywood epic about the adventure. No, but why not? I mean – why not dream? A hundred percent. This is the same with the book deal. There was there was people that said, "Oh no, books. No one reads anymore." Blah, blah, blah. Like you'll be you're such a wanker. Like what kind of like like shit? You know, like it's so funny. You probably get this with podcasting and, and other and the stuff. You know, like people like the haters or the trolls. It's the worst part of our society. But geez, it's hard to ignore. Oh yeah, tall poppy in Australia is wild. Oh, it, it's rough and. I've had a few people kind of go hard on it and they're like, oh, how did, why did you think you had the right to write that book? I'm like, well, it's a true story, mate. Like, and it actually happened. It happened. And it was vetted by a number of my team, helped with like fact checking stuff and making sure that I didn't overstate different things or like got that right, got that checked by the experts, checked the logs, checked my diaries, checked photo. Like, it's, it's as accurate as it can be. And they're like, oh, well, you know, I've done more than you and I don't have a book. I'm like, well, go write one. Simple, like, go write one. Yeah, <laughs> if you reckon you can tell if, well, I'm not stopping you. And and that sort of, look, they're, they're 1%. Yeah, we've sold nearly 14,000 copies. <gasps> You're a bestseller. Yeah, bestseller. It was the top in the top 10 best-selling Australian autobiographies last year. That's amazing. Which is just incredible. And, and so you go, okay, and one guy was like, you're a wanker. He's the loudest though. They're always the loudest. The other 13,000 people, I, I do the, yeah, it's reading reviews and, and getting fan mail and stuff. It is, it oh, is that's pretty amazing. cool. But I find that. But yet when, so anyone out there listening that, that does want to write a book or do something that, that someone's telling you not to do, forget about them and speak to someone that's done it because every author I spoke to, said nothing other than like best thing you'll ever do. Like they were super supportive. They were super helpful with like who to speak to and how to structure things. And and then same with like, do we go down the path of, of trying to 
get a movie deal out of it and that. And yeah, there's some people like, oh, you're such a wanker for thinking that. I'm like, yeah, but why not? Like it's sold enough copies. It's a great true story and you can just see it. You're like, yeah, why not? I mean, it might take 20 years or 30s. I'll never get done and just another project. But you go give it a shot. Why not? I think that's something, again, like I'd never written a book before and I thought, oh, maybe I get a ghost writer. I'm like, no, I'll just learn how to write a book. So there's, there's probably a, like there's a how to write a book. <laughs> book behind you. <laughs> behind me there somewhere. And How to author. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a fun process to go, okay, well, I'll just reread like my 10 favourite books that are adventure kind of, like things like Into Thin Air yeah, and Bravo yeah. oh, yes. 2.0 and, and these sorts of books. You just go, okay, well, I'll read them and look at them through the lens of how they're structured, yeah, the, the photo bit in the middle and, and all that stuff. And then start writing and then just get better and better. And some of the early drafts are terrible. I think my brother, who is really helpful, his feedback of the first draft, he's like, well, it's a good story. (laughs) You just haven't told it well. You're just telling it shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, honest advice is very valuable. So so good. And then the best, I love this story. So there's a thank you in the back of the book. I haven't been able to track her down yet. There's a thank you in the book to someone, to a girl called Coco, who worked at the office works right near my house. Because every, uh, this process of writing where every Friday I'd print out the the, the current draft or the chapters that I've been working on. And then I'd review it, red pen it over the weekend and everything. We'd go back to Monday morning, I'd, I'd start rewriting. And so every week I was in there dropping off, you know, behind masks, behind plastic screens, oh dropping God, off the, of the book. But then one day she kind of goes, is this you? Or like behind a mother, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, is, is, this, is this your own book? I'm like, yeah. She's like, I was, I was like, do you mind if I print my own copy and I'll have a read? And I'm like, yeah, 100%. So she, and I'm like, but give me, give me some feedback. She's like, yeah, for sure. And she was the first person to read the book that didn't know me, which was really cool. But then wrote me this great book report on what was good, what was what didn't work or, or how That's to so lovely of her. And it was so good. So yeah, she gets she got a thank you in the back of the book and has a very early raw draft of it as well. And that was something I'm like, oh that's that's cool if the, the random office works photocopier. <laughs> loves it. <laughs> loves it. Uh, who would see a lot of I'm sure they see a lot of mediocre books that they have to print. So that was that was kind of a cool story. But so again that's sort of to people that if you're worried about something, just go and learn. Learn about it, think about it, and then back yourself in to go. And any again, this kind of comes like my law of physics quote: like anything that humans do is a learned skill. No one was born knowing a how writer. to do all the things we know how to do. They, they are learned skills. NASA only takes like twenty-four months to train astronauts. You know, they obviously Shut go into up. that with degrees and shit. But their core <laughs> astronaut training is like what do you need to be an astronaut? Months. Degrees and shit. Yeah. Degrees and shit. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them, I mean, these overachievers just calm down. Oh, yeah. With, with some of their stuff, but just <laughs> calm down, dear astronauts. Calm down. Yeah, calm down. <laughs> Says the ex-defense diplomat, Antarctic expedition leader, author, speaker. Hey, yeah, but I just have an art arts degree. Yeah. Oh, yeah, true. But you also, I did find one other fun fact when you were like, I don't have any awards. I'm like, didn't you win like some silver medal for like? performed skydiving in Dubai. Oh, yeah, that was a, a skydiving competition. Yeah, see, yeah. it's like Australian Defence Medal, diving, skydiving in Dubai. Yeah, actually, I, was, I could see that medal. That's skydiving. Yeah. 2012, <laughs> skydiving Dubai, freestyle. Um. <laughs> but, I mean, you are a wonderful, wonderful example, and I love that you brought up that whole haters and trolling thing that 
no matter what you do, even if it's the coolest story ever, like there'll always be the small percentage of people who just resent your success and they're always the loudest. They're always the ones that are impossible to ignore. But if you let them dictate your decisions, then literally the 15,000 and and that's only the people you know who bought the book, let alone who it was passed on to or read it. Like every copy gets read, you know, a million times. And if you had let one person who was loud dictate that, you would have deprived all of those people of the story that they wanted to hear. And like, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I think we are too controlled by what other people think. Listen to the loudest voices, not the most important ones, and miss out on so many opportunities that way. Whereas it's become your career now. You're on the speaking circuit. You have a book. You've got the potential for a movie, which would absolutely blow the big screen away. Like, I think it's just, it's almost a sign that you've made it when someone is invested enough in what you're doing to be a hater. Like, that's all you have to think of it as is pat myself on the back. I've got a hater. I'm, I'm made. That is a great way to look at it. Like, wow, I've got, I've got trolls and haters. You're like, made it. I'm famous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's how I see it. I'm like, the minute I had someone who was passionate enough to express their dislike, I was like, shit, man, that's impact. Negative impact. But it's still impact. I love the one at um, in when you fly into Hobart, like Mona, the gallery. They've got all their billboards. They just have all the bad reviews. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you never going to please everyone anyway? That's not the point. I feel like if you stood for everything, you'd stood for nothing. So, well, I have already taken up so much of your time, and I could talk to you for. I mean, obviously, we could talk for hours. This is like our third hour of just chatting shit about life, but I will let you get on with the rest of your day. But where can people find the book? Where can people find you if they want to engage you for leadership speaking? Because I know that's something you're incredibly good at. Where can they find you? Yeah. So, the book's 537 Days of Winter. It's in all good bookstores around Australia and New Zealand. It's in a lot of the airport bookstores. It seems to be very well stocked these days. Otherwise, online through Booktopia or whoever you like to use there. Um, Or a lot of little community libraries. Anytime I stuff up a signature, I put one in in a community library. <laughs> I stuff up a lot of signatures for someone that wrote a book. Is there one in the Davis Library, Davis Station Library? They are in the Australian Antarctic State. I don't know. They, there's a few. There's one on the ship that was supposed to bring me home. Oh, as well. amazing. So they're, they're down there. If you're, if you're on an Antarctic Station, grab grab a copy. Otherwise, for speaking, yeah, through my website, www.davidoff.com or through Saxton Speakers who, who do a great job booking me out and everything. And, yeah, and I'd, I'd love to love to come and chat to, to companies and schools and, and different community groups about anything from, from either just telling the story of what it's like to run an Antarctic station during a pandemic or around like my, my mental health strategies, leadership experiences, leadership training for junior leaders is probably one of my favourite workshops to run is to get out there with people that – want to start their leadership journey and they don't quite know where it's going to take them and, and that's that's always great to get some young minds and go, all right, careful what you wish for. <laughs> well, I'll include the direct links to all of that in the show notes for anyone who's interested, which I'm sure will be everyone. We've already had, I literally, it was like a teaser and people were like, who is he? Where can I get his book? I'm like, oh, this is very exciting. So I will share all that. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I wish we could do like a full Joe Rogan five-hour episode because I would have just kept chatting, but I'll make sure everyone gets their copy of the book instead. And good luck this summer. Wish I was coming with you. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be, Good chaos, I think, this summer. But uh, no, thanks so much, Amy. That was a great chat. I could chat to you for hours as well. So, and best of luck with the, with the podcast and, and what's in your future as well. So. Thank you. Cheers. 
What a man, what an adventure. I highly recommend you read David's book. And as mentioned, I'll pop the direct link with his speaking links and website as well into the show notes. Please do show him some love for squeezing us into his busy schedule before he heads back down south, I think even in a couple of days, by sharing the episode and tagging at 537 Days of Winter if you enjoyed listening along. In the meantime, I hope you're all having an amazing week and are seizing your yay. 